Section 5 of Lady into Fox. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Graymore. Lady into Fox by David Garnett. Section 5. The next morning he looked about him at the place and found the thing there that he most wanted. And that was a little walled-in garden where his wife could run in freedom and yet be in safety. After they had had breakfast, she was wild to go out into the snow. So they went out together, and he had never seen such a mad creature in all his life as his wife was then. For she ran to and fro as if she were crazy, biting at the snow and rolling in it, and round and round in circles and rushed back at him fiercely as if she meant to bite him. He joined her in the frolic, and began snowballing her till she was so wild that it was all he could do to quiet her again and bring her indoors for luncheon. Indeed, with her gambolings, she tracked the whole garden over with her feet. He could see where she had rolled in the snow and where she had danced in it, and looking at those prints of her feet as they went in, made his heart ache, he knew not why. They passed the first day at old Nanny's cottage happily enough, without their usual bickerings, and this because of the novelty of the snow which had diverted them. In the afternoon he first showed his wife to little Polly, who eyed her very curiously, but hung back shyly, and seemed a good deal afraid of the fox. But Mr. Teabrook took up a book, and let them get acquainted by themselves, and presently, looking up, saw that they had come together, and Polly was stroking his wife, patting her and running her fingers through her fur. Presently she began talking to the fox, and then brought her doll in to show her, so that very soon they were very good playmates together. Watching the two gave Mr. Teabrook great delight and in particular when he noticed that there was something very motherly in his vixen. She was indeed far above the child in intelligence, and restrained herself, too, from any hasty action. But while she seemed to wait on Polly's pleasure, yet she managed to give a twist to the game, whatever it was, that never failed to delight the little girl. In short, in a very little while, Polly was so taken with her new playmate, that she cried when she was parted from her, and wanted her always with her. This disposition of Mrs. Teabrick's made Mrs. Cork more agreeable than she had been lately either to the husband or the wife. Three days after they had come to the cottage the weather changed, and they woke up one morning to find the snow gone, and the wind in the south and the sun shining, so that it was like the first beginning of spring. Mr. Teabrick let his vixen out into the garden after breakfast, stayed with her a while, and then went indoors to write some letters. When he got out again he could see no sign of her anywhere so that he ran about, bewildered, calling to her. At last he spied a mound of fresh earth by the wall in one corner of the garden, and running thither, found that there was a hole freshly dug, seeming to go under the wall. On this he ran out of the garden, quickly till he came to the other side of the wall, but there was no hole there, so he concluded that she has not yet got through. So it proved to be, for reaching down into the hole he felt her brush with his hand, and could hear her distinctly working away with her claws. He called to her then, saying, "'Sylvia, Sylvia, why do you do this? Are you trying to escape from me? I'm your husband, and if I keep you confined, it is to protect you, not to let you run into danger. Show me how I can make you happy, and I will do it. But do not try to escape from me. I love you, Sylvia. Is it because of that that you want to fly from me, to go into the wild, where you will be in danger of your life always? There are dogs everywhere, and they all would kill you, if it were not for me. Come out, Sylvia, come out.' But Sylvia would not listen to him, so he waited there silent. Then he spoke to her in a different way, asking her had she forgot the bargain she made with him, that she would not go out alone. But now, when she had all the liberty of the garden to herself, would she wantonly break her word? And he asked her, were they not married? 
and had she not always found him a good husband to her? But she heeded this neither, until presently his temper gaining somewhat out of hand, he cursed her obstinacy, and told her if she would be a damned fox, she was welcome to it. For his part, he could get his own way. She had not escaped yet. He would dig her out, for he still had time, and if she struggled, put her in a bag. These words brought her forth instantly, and she looked at him with as much astonishment as if she knew not what could have made him angry. Yes, she even fawned on him, but in a good-natured kind of way, as if she were a very good wife, putting up wonderfully with her husband's temper. These airs of hers made the poor gentleman, so simple was he, repent his outburst and feel most ashamed. But for all that, when she was out of the hole, he filled it up with great stones and beat them in with a crowbar, so that she should find her work at that point harder than before, if she was tempted to begin it again. In the afternoon he let her go again into the garden, but sent little Polly with her to keep her company. But presently, on looking out, he saw his vixen had climbed up into the limbs of an old pear tree, and was looking over the wall, and was not so far from it, but she might jump over it, if she could get a little further. Mr. Tebrook ran out into the garden as quick as he could, and when his wife saw him it seemed she was startled and made a false spring at the wall, so that she missed reaching it and fell back heavily to the ground and lay there insensible. When Mr. Tebrick got up to her, he found her head was twisted under her by her fall and the neck seemed to be broken. The shock was so great to him that for some time he could not do anything, but knelt beside her, turning her limp body stupidly in his hands. At length he recognized that she was indeed dead, and beginning to consider what dreadful afflictions God had visited him with, he blasphemed horribly, and called on God to strike him dead, or give his wife back to him. "'Is it not enough?' he cried, adding a foul blasphemous oath. "'That you should rob me of my dear wife, making her fox? But now you must rob me of that fox, too, that has been my only solace and comfort in this affliction?' Then he burst into tears, and began wringing his hands, and continued there in such an extremity of grief for half an hour, that he cared nothing— neither what he was doing, nor what would become of him in the future, but only knew that his life was ended now, and he would not live any longer than he could help. All this while the little girl Polly stood by, first staring, then asking him what had happened, and lastly crying with fear. But he never heeded her, nor looked at her, but only tore his hair, sometimes shouted at God, or shook his fist at heaven. So in a fright Polly opened the door and ran out of the garden. At length, wore out, and as it were all numb with his loss, Mr. Tebrook got up and went within doors, leaving his dear fox lying near where she had fallen. He stayed indoors only two minutes, and then came out again with a razor in his hand, intending to cut his own throat, for he was out of his senses in this first paroxysm of grief. But his vixen was gone, at which he looked about for a moment bewildered, and then enraged, thinking that somebody must have taken the body. The door of the garden being open, he ran straight through it. Now this door, which had been left ajar by Polly when she ran off, opened into a little courtyard where the fowls were shut in at night. The woodhouse in the privy also stood there. On the far side of it from the garden gate were two large wooden doors big enough when open to let a cart enter, and high enough to keep a man from looking over into the yard. When Mr. Tebrook got into the yard, he found his vixen, leaping up at these doors, and wild with terror, but as lively as ever he saw her in his life. He ran up to her, but she shrank away from him, and would then have dodged him too but he caught hold of her. She bared her teeth at him, but he paid no heed to that, only picked her straight up into his arms and took her so indoors. Yet all the while he could scarce believe his eyes to see her living, and felt her all over very carefully, to find if she had not some bones broken. But no, he could find none. Indeed it was some hours before this poor silly gentleman 
began to suspect the truth, which was that his vixen had practised a deception upon him, and all the time he was bemoaning his loss in such heart-rending terms, she was only shamming death to run away directly she was able. If it had not been that the yard-gates were shut, which was a mere chance, she had got her liberty by that trick, and that this was only a trick of hers to sham dead was plain when he had thought it over. Indeed, it is an old and time-honoured trick of the fox. It is an Aesop, and a hundred other writers have confirmed it since. But so thoroughly had he been deceived by her, that at first he was as much overcome with joy at his wife still being alive, as he had been, with grief a little while before, thinking her dead. He took her in his arms, hugging her to him, and thanking God a dozen times for her preservation. But his kissing and fondling her had very little effect now, for she did not answer him by leaking or soft looks, but stayed huddled up and sullen, with her hair bristling on her neck and her ears laid back every time he touched her. At first he thought this might be because he had touched some broken bone or tender place where she had been hurt, but at last the truth came to him. Thus he was again to suffer, and though the pain of knowing her treachery to him was nothing to the grief of losing her, yet it was more insidious and lasting. At first, from a mere nothing, this pain grew gradually until it was a torture to him. If he had been one of your stock ordinary husbands, such a one who by experience has learned never to inquire too closely into his wife's doings, her comings or goings, and never to ask her how she has spent the day, for fear he should be made the more of a fool. Had Mr. Tebrick been such a one, he had been luckier, and his pain would have been almost nothing. But you must consider that he had never been deceived once by his wife in the course of their married life. No, she had never told him as much as one white lie, but had always been frank, open, and ingenuous, as if she and her husband were not husband and wife, or indeed of opposite sexes. Yet we must rate him as very foolish, that living thus with a fox, which beast has the same reputation for deceitfulness, craft, and cunning, in all countries, all ages, and amongst all races of mankind, he should expect this fox to be as candid and honest with him in all things as the country girl he had married. His wife's sullenness and bad temper continued that day, for she cowered away from him and hid under the sofa, nor could he persuade her to come out from there. Even when it was her dinner-time she stayed, refusing resolutely to be tempted out with food, and lying so quiet that he heard nothing from her for hours. At night he carried her up into the bedroom, but she was still sullen and refused to eat a morsel, though she drank a little water during the night, when she fancied he was asleep. The next morning was the same, and by now Mr. Tebrick had been through all the agonies of wounded self-esteem, disillusionment, and despair that a man can suffer. But though his emotions rose up in his heart and nearly stifled him, he showed no sign of them to her. Neither did he abate one jot his tenderness and consideration for his vixen. At breakfast he tempted her with a freshly killed young pullet. It hurt him to make this advance to her, for hitherto he had kept her strictly on cooked meats, but the pain of seeing her refuse it was harder still for him to bear. Added to this was now an anxiety lest she should starve herself to death rather than stay with him any longer. All that morning he kept her close, but in the afternoon let her loose again in the garden after he had lopped the pear-tree so that she could not repeat her performance of climbing. But seeing how disgustedly she looked at him while he was by, never offering to run or to play as she was used, but only standing stock-still with her tail between her legs, her ears flattened, and the hair bristling on her shoulders, seeing this he left her to herself out of mere humanity. When he came out after half an hour he found that she was gone, but there was a fair-sized hole by the wall and she just buried all but her brush, digging desperately to get under the wall and make her escape. He ran up to the hole, and put his arm in after her, and called to her to come out, but she would not. 
So at first he began pulling her out by the shoulder, then his hold slipping by the hind legs. As soon as he had drawn her forth, she whipped round and snapped at his hand and bit it through near the joint of the thumb, but let it go instantly. They stayed there for a minute, facing each other, he on his knees and she facing him, the picture of unrepentant wickedness and fury. Being thus on his knees, Mr. Tebrook was down on her level very nearly, and her muzzle was thrust almost into his face. Her ears lay flat on her head, her gums were bared in a silent snarl, and all her beautiful teeth threatening him that she would bite him again. Her back, too, was half-arched, all her hair bristling and her brush held drooping. But it was her eyes that held his, with their slit pupils looking at him with savage desperation and rage. The blood ran very freely from his hand, but he never noticed that or the pain of it either, for all his thoughts were for his wife. "'What is this, Sylvia?' he said very quietly. "'What is this? Why are you so savage now? If I stand between you and your freedom, it is because I love you. Is it such torment to be with me?' But Sylvia never stirred a muscle. "'You would not do this if you were not in anguish, poor beast. You want your freedom. I cannot keep you. I cannot hold you to vows made when you were a woman. Why, you have forgotten who I am.' The tears then began running down his cheeks. He sobbed and said to her, "'Go. I shall not keep you. Poor beast, poor beast, I love you, I love you. Go if you want to, but if you remember me, come back. I shall never keep you against your will. Go. Go. But kiss me now.' He leaned forward then and put his lips to her snarling fangs. But though she kept snarling, she did not bite him. Then he got up quickly and went to the door of the garden that opened into a little paddock against a wood. When he opened it, she went through it like an arrow— crossed the paddock like a puff of smoke, and in a moment was gone from his sight. Then suddenly finding himself alone, Mr. Tebrick came as it were to himself and ran after her, calling her by name and shouting to her, and so went plunging into the wood, and threw it for about a mile, running almost blindly. At last, when he was worn out, he sat down, seeing that she had gone beyond recovery and it was already night. Then rising, he walked slowly homewards, wearied and spent in spirit. As he went, he bound up his hand that was still running with blood. His coat was torn, his hat was lost, and his face was scratched right across with briars. Now in cold blood he began to reflect on what he had done, and to repent bitterly, having set his wife free. He had betrayed her, so that now, from his act, she must lead the life of a wild fox forever, and must undergo all the rigors and hardships of the climate, and all the hazards of a hunted creature. When Mr. Tebrook got back to the cottage, he found Mrs. Cork was sitting up for him. It was already late. "'What have you done with Mrs. Tebrook, sir? I miss her, and I missed you, and I have not known what to do, expecting something dreadful had happened. I've been sitting up for you half the night, and where is she now, sir?' She accosted him so vigorously that Mr. Tebrook stood silent. At length he said, "'I have let her go. She has run away.' "'Poor Miss Sylvia!' cried the old woman. "'Poor creature! You ought to be ashamed, sir. Let her go, indeed. Poor lady, is that the way for her husband to talk? It is a disgrace. But I saw it coming from the first. The old woman was white with fury. She did not mind what she said, but Mr. Tebrook was not listening to her. At last he looked at her, and saw that she had just begun to cry. So he went out of the room, and up to the bed, and lay down as he was, in his clothes utterly exhausted, and fell into a dog's sleep, starting up every now and then with horror, and then falling back with fatigue. It was late when he woke up, but cold and raw, he felt cramped in all his limbs. As he lay, he heard again the noise which had woken him the trotting of several horses, and the voices of men riding by the house. Mr. Tebrook jumped up and ran to the window and then looked out, and the first thing that he saw was a gentleman in a pink coat riding at a walk down the lane. At this sight Mr. Tebrook could wait no longer, 
for pulling on his boots in mad haste, ran out instantly, meaning to say that they must not hunt, and how his wife was escaped, and they might kill her. But when he found himself outside the cottage, words failed him, and fury took possession of him, so that he could only cry out, "'How dare you, you damned black-eyed!' And so with a stick in his hand he threw himself on the gentleman in the pink coat and seized his horse's rein, and catching the gentleman by the leg was trying to throw him. But really it is impossible to say what Mr. Teaburk intended by his behavior, or what he would have done, for the gentleman finding himself suddenly assaulted in so unexpected a fashion, by so strange a tousled and deceived figure, clubbed his hunting crop and dealt him a blow on the temple so that he fell insensible. Another gentleman rode up at this moment, and they were civil enough to dismount and carry Mr. Teabrook into the cottage, where they were met by old Nanny, who kept wringing her hands and told them Mr. Teabrook's wife had run away and she was a vixen, and that was the cause that Mr. Teabrook had run out and assaulted them. The two gentlemen could not help laughing at this, and mounting their horses rode on without delay, after telling each other that Mr. Teabrook, whoever he was, was certainly a madman, and the old woman seemed as mad as her master. This story, however, went the rounds of the gentry in those parts, and perfectly confirmed every one in their previous opinion, namely that Mr. Teabrook was mad and his wife had run away from him. The part about her being a vixen was laughed at by the few that heard it, but soon left out as immaterial to the story, and incredible in itself, though afterwards it came to be remembered and its significance to be understood. When Mr. Teabrook came to himself, it was past noon, and his head was aching so painfully that he could only call to mind, in a confused way, what had happened. However, he sent off Mrs. Cork's son directly, on one of his horses, to inquire about the hunt. At the same time, he gave orders to old Nanny that she was to put out food and water for her mistress, on the chance that she might yet be in the neighborhood. By nightfall, Simon was back with the news that the hunt had had a very long run, but had lost one fox, then drawing a covert, had chopped an old dog fox, and so they ended the day's sport. This put poor Mr. Teabrook in some hopes again, and he rose at once from his bed and went out into the wood and began calling his wife but was overcome with faintness, and lay down, and so passed the night in the open from mere weakness. End of section 5